I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see you all here this evening. Uh, I think it's uh, most appropriate that this program with Mel Goodman is being held on the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War. Um, I saw a headline in today's Washington Post, and I'll quote, Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel has ordered the Pentagon to reconsider a sweeping military s strategy that the Obama administration ordered last year, end quote. The strategy that President Obama presented to the Pentagon 14 months ago would shift military, diplomatic, and economic attention to Asia after a decade of absorption in the Middle East. In his new book, National Insecurity, Mel Goodman chronicles the emphasis on the military and intelligence from President Eisenhower to President Obama, from Vietnam to Iraq and Afghanistan, to fledgling democracies in Africa and Central America um, that the U.S. has meddled and muddled in and created instability. Um, as Mel Goodman states in the introduction to national insecurity, and I quote, the war on terror has created more terrorists than it has eliminated. The United States is no longer seen as a beacon of liberty to the world, but as an imperialistic bully with little respect for international law, end quote. Mel Goodman was a Soviet analyst at the CIA and the State Department for 24 years, and a professor of international relations at the National War College for 18 years. He served in the US Army in Athens and was intelligence advisor to the SALT delegation from 1971 to 1972. He's currently a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington and adjunct professor of government at Johns Hopkins University. He's authored or co-authored co -authored and edited seven books and is a frequent contributor to major news um, outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Baltimore Sun. And he's an old friend, and I'm very happy to see you here this evening. And, and you're from Baltimore. That's great. Balmer. Balmer. Well, Judy, thank you very much. It's, it's good to be here. And as Judy says, I can't think of a more appropriate evening than the 10th anniversary of the worst national security decision any president has ever made uh, without any rivalry uh, whatsoever. In fact, to look at the, um, uh, the coverage of the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War in the so-called mainstream media, the vapid and sipid coverage, my first reaction was, where in the world is H.L. Mencken? Is there a Mencken room here? There is a Mencken room. Why aren't we in the Mencken room? Oh, it's too small. Okay. H.L. Mencken would have had so much to say about the bilge of American idealism. He would have gone after this notion of exceptionalism and this notion of indispensability uh, that we claim uh, for ourselves. Certainly in the coverage, I saw nothing about the questioning of the legality of the war, of the morality of the war, of the uh, phony intelligence that a lot of people f feel was responsible for the war. Uh, indeed, there was a certain uh, politicization of a great deal of intelligence by the CIA. But the fact of the matter is that Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld wanted this war. 9-11 was a pretext uh, for this war. Uh, Iraq and the so-called connections to terrorism, which didn't exist, again, a pretext for the war. Saddam Hussein was a pretext for the war. It's a war that George Bush wanted, uh, in a sense, to challenge his father's uh, record from Desert Storm. It's a war that Dick Cheney wanted because he was trying to solidify and increase the power of the presidency, and by creating a wartime president, that's how you get a more powerful uh, president. And Rumsfeld wanted the war because he was trying to prove that you didn't need 550,000 troops to go into the Persian Gulf. You could do it with a small, lean, lethal, mobile force and prove how effective the new American military uh, had become. I was at the War College when we got the briefings from the Pentagon before March. 
and we were assured that we would go in in March, we would begin the withdrawal in September, and by November we would be out. There was no plan for what to do about the war once it began. There was no plan for any long term. Those people who think we went in for the oil, I think, uh, don't understand the very basic reasons why we went in in terms of George Bush's pride and hubris and the willful uh, character of Dick Cheney. Um, the starting point for me uh, should be uh, President Eisenhower. Uh, President Eisenhower gave four warnings during his presidency. You're all familiar, I know, with one of them. It was the, one of the two most important farewell addresses ever given, comparable to George Washington's, in which he warned about the military-industrial complex. I was a student at Hopkins at this time. The president of Hopkins was President Eisenhower's brother, Milton. And he met with a few of the students. I was fortunate to be in that group. He was a key advisor to the president, and he knew that the president, in his draft, had written military-industrial-congressional complex, uh, which was left out. Congressional was dropped. He asked his brother why, and President Eisenhower said it was enough to take on the military and industry. I couldn't take on the Congress, too. The fact of the matter is it's a military-industrial-congressional-intelligence complex. And until we begin to solve this problem, we're going to stay in this terrible rut we're in. And here it is 40 years after Vietnam and all the mistakes that were made in the 60s and the 70s we've made all over again. It's rather unbelievable that nothing has been learned. The second warning that Eisenhower gave was in uh, a speech he gave early in his first term, the Cross of Iron speech. And it's unfortunate that he didn't make this a theme of his presidency because I think he could have served a very important educational uh, function since Eisenhower knew what war was better than any other living American at, at that time, uh, avoided war himself on any kind of conventional uh, scale, and he said war will involved, involve the genius of our scientists and our engineers, the sweat of our laborers, and the hopes of our children. For everything we build in terms of a military platform, that's a school that will not be built, a bridge that will not be built, an infrastructure uh, that will not be addressed. And when you look at the situation we're in now, with the magic number we keep hearing in, in terms of the uh, deficit of $4 trillion, think of it in terms of 25 to $3 that we've wasted in Iraq and Afghanistan, two unwinnable wars, and then throw in George Bush's tax policies to decrease uh, taxes uh, for the wealthy, and essentially there's your $4 trillion. So all of the economic wounds we face now are self-inflicted uh, wounds. The third warning that Eisenhower gave that needs more attention, and I, it's kind of ironic here because we have a president who got a law degree from Harvard, and, and Richard, I'm not casting any aspersions uh, on having a law degree, but Obama also taught uh, constitutional law at the University of Chicago, Eisenhower warned that once you engage in permanent war, you're going to compromise personal liberty and civil liberty. And when I think of the last 10 years and the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendments uh, to the Constitution uh, that deal with illegal searches and seizures, the 8th, the 4th against torture and abuse, the 5th uh, in terms of due process, and the sixth, in terms of a free and fair trial. Here I'm talking about Brad, Bradford Manning. I'm not carrying a brief for Manning, but in June it will be three years since he was arrested. That's not exactly a fair and speedy trial uh, process uh, in this case. So civil liberties have been compromised during this 10 years of the global war uh, on terror, and I think this needs to be uh, addressed by a public community uh, that should be more involved uh, with what has happened to the political process and the policy process in this past decade. The final warning he gave was not put into writing. Uh, we got this from his brother Milton Eisenhower at Hopkins, and it was sitting around with his key advisors in the last month or two of his presidency, and he was ruminating about his role and the policies that he pursued and avoiding war, uh, ending the Korean War the way he did, took a lot of courage. Not many presidents would have ended that way. We would have struggled a lot longer. 
Uh, but Eisenhower was willing to accept a compromise just to get the hell out of the Korean uh, Peninsula. But he said, God help the United States when the people who sit in this chair do not understand how to deal with the military, do not understand how to talk to the military, do not understand the demands uh, of the military. And by and large, if you look at American presidents, they've, in most cases, know nothing about the military. And I think the turning point for me was really what happened 20 years ago and looking at the four presidents uh, since then. And that's why in the book I have a chapter on each one of the presidents. 20 years ago, we had one of the most important strategic opportunities this country has ever encountered. There was the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and the East European communist regimes in 1990, and then the collapse of the Soviet Union itself, which no one really expected to happen uh, in his or her lifetime and certainly not happen in any kind of peaceful, moderate kind of scenario, the way the Soviet Union collapsed like a house of cards. And, of course, someone said it collapsed like a house of cards because economically and politically it was uh, a house of cards. But you've had two presidents in that 20-year period, Clinton and Obama, who knew nothing about the military and, frankly, very little about national security. You had one president, George Herbert Walker Bush, um, who had served in the military, was willing to turn over too much power to the Pentagon and his secretary of defense at that time, uh, Dick Cheney. And then finally you had uh, George uh, W. Bush, uh, who really... Uh, conducted a policy of unconscionable uh, approaches and unconscionable instruments that were used uh, to put into effect American foreign policy. To look at each one of these presidents briefly, uh, starting with George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Bush clearly had this great strategic opportunity handed to him. The Cold War ended on his watch. He took a lot of credit for this, which he did not deserve. The point that I think has to be considered is how did he handle it? Why wasn't he prepared for it? Why was there no policy? This was something that the United States had been thinking about ever since the Cold War began in the late 1940s. What if the Cold War were to end on favorable terms for the United States? George Kennan, who wrote the policy of containment, which we pursued for most of this period, even had a prescription in the containment policy. That, that last item of containment was that once the Soviet Union did moderate itself, and of course in 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed it became a very moderate uh, force in international politics, that was the time to anchor, and that was Kennan's word, anchor the Soviet Union, in this case Russia, to the Western architectural uh, security system. And that's exactly what we didn't do. Instead, Bush sponsored a policy of unilateralism, and he had people over at the uh, uh, Pentagon uh, under Cheney, whose names will be familiar. They're the same ones who brought you the 2003 uh, war. People like uh, Paul Wolfowitz and Doug Fife and Scooter Libby, uh, who should have served a jail term for his role in an outing and uh, clandestine agent at the uh, CIA. But that was a uh, jail sentence that was commuted. He was never pardoned, uh, but a sentence was commuted. Uh, by George W. Bush. Um, Clinton, I think, was responsible for several setbacks in American national security. Uh, the first was agreeing to the pressure tactics of Gingrich and the Contract for America and Senator Jesse Helms, who wanted to abolish certain institutions in the national security arena. The Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, which we sorely need if we're ever going to get back to taking arms control seriously. The United States Information Agency, which is an important institution staffed by foreign service officers who go abroad to explain the United States to the rest of the world, a message that sorely needs to be delivered and, and understood internationally. We don't have that institution. And then finally, the weakening of the Agency for uh, International Development. Clinton also bowed to pressure from the Pentagon and did not pursue international treaties that I think were in our interests and would have served our national security concern if we had put them into effect. He walked away from the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, he walked away from the ban on landmines, and he walked away from the ban on the use and provision of cluster bombs to uh, other countries. 
uh, all of these policies he supported, but when he ran up to some pressure from the military, he bowed down uh, to that uh, uh, pressure. And finally, instead of anchoring uh, Russia to the international security system, he took the old international security system, the old thinking, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and he expanded NATO, he enlarged NATO, bringing in first the former Warsaw Pact member states uh, from Eastern Europe, and then George W. Bush went even further and brought in uh, former republics from the Soviet Union itself into the NATO alliance. So the Russians immediately learned that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the weakening of Soviet power was going to lead to a confrontation with a NATO organization, a powerful military and political organization that would now be drawn even closer uh, to Russia's borders uh, in a very immediate uh, sense. George W. Bush requires really very little time uh, or intention uh, from us, even though we should not forget uh, the damage that he inflicted on this nation with uh, a war uh, that was brought to us with a series of very profound uh, lies. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me when you read this terrible um, roundup of assessments on the 10th anniversary, no one really dwells on the fact that the war was a total deceit from the very beginning. There were no weapons of mass destruction. There were several of us who called many reporters and tried to get that message across, but you had people like Judith Miller at the New York Times who was committed uh, to selling a policy of weapons of mass destruction, and you even had reporters at the Washington Post who I think knew better, but they couldn't get their views uh, past the neoconservative editors who run the editorial page and the op-ed editorial page uh, of the Washington uh, posts. He gave it all away with two State of the Union addresses in 2002 and 2003. 2002 was the State of the Union address that talked about the axis of evil. The axis of evil was this peculiar grouping of North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. Iran and Iraq uh, did not present an axis. Uh, Iraq invaded Iran in 1980 and fought a war of nearly a, a, a decade. They were two natural enemies. If anything, we've created a friendship between Iran and Iraq. That's why the Iraq war has been such a strategic failure and a strategic nightmare. Remember, the only way you have a victory in the use of military power is you come out of the situation with at least a more favorable political environment or a more favorable political equation. Is this the part where I shut up? That's it? Oh, okay. That was brief. Um, in 2003, you had a State of the Union address that was based on a total lie. That was the famous 16 words that British intelligence has learned that Iraq is trying to obtain nuclear um, materials from a West African uh, country. Uh, the giveaway on that one was the introduction British intelligence. This was a statement that was negotiated between the CIA uh, and the White House, the National Security Council. Bush wanted to say the CIA. The CIA said, no, you can't say that because we don't believe that. The letter it was based on was a forgery. Uh, the forgery was well known to all of the people who worked at the State Department, who worked at CIA, and even the military uh, services, all of whom sent representatives to uh, Niger uh, to check out this story and learn the letter was a forgery. Uh, Joe Wilson was the ambassador who went to Niger, who became very famous when his wife, Valerie Plame, was outed by uh, Dick Cheney's staff, uh, led by Scooter uh, Libby. So when the Bush White House came back and said, well, what if we say British intelligence? Because there was a document they found going back to the 1990s in which uh, it was alleged the British didn't buy it, but they put out the document uh, that Iraq was trying to obtain nuclear uh, materials uh, in Africa, that is enriched uh, uranium or at least yellow cake. Uh, it was a total uh, fabrication. In fact, if you look at all of the allegations from the CIA's National Intelligence Estimate in October 2002 
and the use of that estimate to craft Colin Powell's speech to the United Nations in February of 2003, all the allegations were false. Not one of them held up uh, in the immediate atmosphere and certainly in the, the wake of all of the research that has gone into looking at these uh, documents. Um, so we'll, we will be paying for the crimes of the Bush administration for a very long time. Uh, finally, Obama. Obama, for me, in, in many ways, is, is the greatest disappointment because I am such a supporter of Obama, have been and continue to be. But I remember telling audiences from the very beginning, going back to 2007 and 2008, was the weakness of the Obama candidacy is this is an individual with no background whatsoever uh, in national security. And I think he gave that away when he made his first national security appointments. Two were made totally for domestic reasons, which is the wrong way to pick a national security team. And, of course, I'm talking about Hillary Clinton, who had no experience whatsoever to be the Secretary of State and turn the job into that of a roving ambassador traveling to more than 100 countries and traveling over a million miles during her four-year stewardship uh, at the State Department. And then, of course, retaining uh, Robert Gates as the Secretary of Defense, the same Robert Gates who was instrumental in politicizing intelligence at the CIA in the 1980s that led to the intelligence failure with regard to the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union, Obama keeps on uh, as a Secretary of Defense in order to tell the military leaders at the Pentagon that he's not going to make any waves at the Pentagon and to convince both the right wing of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party that I'm going to be very careful in how I deal with military uh, security. The other uh, nominations were just as weak. Uh, a retired Marine General, James Jones, was made the National Security Advisor. He was not qualified for the job. He was out in less than two years. He was forced to uh, resign. Uh, and Leon Panetta uh, was made the CIA director. He was soon captured by the operational culture of the CIA and served no real purpose at the CIA any more than he served when he was moved over to uh, the Pentagon when Obama wanted to make sure he would get a unanimous vote in the Senate uh, to confirm Panetta, and that's exactly uh, what he got. So the team uh, was a disaster. The policies that worry me uh, are two in terms of militarization. One, of course, was the surge in Afghanistan uh, that never made any sense, putting in an additional 33,000 troops. It's clear that his heart wasn't in it because when he went to West Point to announce the surge of 33,000, based, by the way, on the very false notion that the surge in Iraq had made a difference in Iraq. It didn't, and we can talk about that um, uh, later on. But when he uh, went to West Point, he talked about the troops going in, which appeased the people on the right, but he also talked about the date, uh, 2011, when he would start withdrawing drawing those troops, which appeased the people uh, on the left. That is not the way to conduct policy of warfare uh, in any fashion. Uh, and now we're in a situation where the surge forces are now out, but we still have 66,000 troops left in Afghanistan, and you have a Pentagon that's dragging its heels uh, and slowing down uh, future uh, tranches of troops to be withdrawn, even though I expect at least 15,000 to be withdrawn this year. But it's going to take a very long time at this rate. And I compare that to what the Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev, did when he came in uh, to run uh, the Soviet Union in 1985-1986. He saw the war in Afghanistan was a disaster. He told the military, you have a year to turn it around. If you can't do it, we're getting out in a year. And that's exactly what he did. He told us secretly in 1987, that's when Schultz was told by uh, Shevardnadze, uh, he announced the timetable in 88. They were out completely, lock, stock, and barrel in 1989. The other policy of militarization, which is incredibly stunning to me, again, because Obama is trained in legal matters and taught constitutional law, is the problem of the drone, which is totally out of control. The idea that in a democracy, you now have targeted killings, targeted assassinations, that is, signature strikes, where you don't even know the identity of the people you are hitting, but you have a, an intelligence signature that conforms to the cars these people travel in or the places where these people go, 
are the associates these people have. And it's included the killing of American uh, citizens. And I remember when Al-Awlaki, the uh, Islamic cleric, was killed, a lot of people felt, well, he has brought uh, a lot of uh, violence uh, to the U.S. He has tried to inspire terrorist attacks in the U.S., and so you can debate that. But how do you justify the killing of a 16-year-old son who got into a car several weeks later to drive out to the desert to try to find his father's body? And that car was hit hit by a Hellfire missile, and the 16-year-old kid uh, was killed. Um, The drone is a policy that needs to be addressed. I think Obama made a huge political mistake when he nominated John Brennan to be the CIA director because John Brennan happens to be uh, the father of the enhanced use of the drone, and it therefore allowed the Senate, both people on the right and the left, uh, to go after Brennan to get an explanation of the drone policy, and Brennan was e- extremely ineffective. I c- find it very interesting that if you look at the Washington Post, and I try not to look at it too often, but it is my hometown newspaper, so I have to, but they have a writer on the left, Eugene Robinson, and a writer on the right, um, Charles Krauthammer, and they have come around to hold hands, basically, on this policy of something needs to be done about the drone policy. We need some kind of transparency. We need some kind of legal framework. We need some kind of judicial process or maybe a judicial court. Uh, But it needs to be addressed because its use is way beyond the original authorization to use force that was passed by the Congress after 9-11. Because now we're targeting not necessarily enemies of the United States. We're getting involved in civil strife in Yemen, civil strife in Somalia, Uh, civil strife in the northwest corner of Pakistan. We're building uh, a base for drones in Mali uh, for reconnaissance drones. I would imagine soon after that, uh, the Reaper, uh, which carries the Hellfire missile, will soon be deployed in Mali, and you will bring into the zone of operations Western Africa and North Africa. Um, So at least the Brennan nomination and the confirmation hearings hearings, which drew more negative votes than any other CIA director, even Robert Gates in uh, uh, 1991, maybe there will be more pressure to take a very hard look at this policy. Um, Let me take a few minutes on uh, what needs to be done and, and how these matters have to be addressed. And here I would talk about, and I have chapters in the book on the defense budget and how we could cut a trillion dollars in spending over the next 10 years without any compromise of American national security uh, whatsoever because we've overbuilt forces to such a great extent, the need to demilitarize, and the need for oversight from the institutions uh, of the government, of American governance, which I think is extremely important. Uh, the defense budget, as Eisenhower warned, is totally uh, out of control. We spend more money on defense uh, than the rest of the world combined. The defense figure you see in the paper is extremely misleading. Um, I think it's a figure of about $562 billion a year. Well, if you add in the cost of the war, which has never been part of the base budget, George Bush was very clever that way, Add in the $140 billion spent by the Veterans Administration, the $80 billion spent by the Department of Energy uh, for nuclear matters, $80 uh, billion for an intelligence community that is really a a military uh, community. You push upwards over $900 billion toward a trillion dollars a year. This needs to be uh, addressed. The platforms that we build, and the classic example is the new F-35 aircraft with Lockheed Martin being very clever in making sure that uh, system, uh, an air-to-ground uh, fighter aircraft, is built in 47 uh, of the 50 states. So to these senators and congressmen who represent these states, the F-35 has nothing to do with the military. It has nothing to do with the defense budget. It's a jobs program. Uh, And there have been many systems in which the Pentagon has asked for maybe 15 helicopters uh, where the Congress will come back with 30 helicopters. Again, these are are jobs programs for the very few major defense contractors uh, that we have. We have 11 aircraft carriers and 11 carrier groups. China has one aircraft carrier. It's a refurbished carrier that they got from uh, Ukraine. 
And I could go on and on marching through um, uh, the military systems uh, that really make very little sense in the current environment that we're in, but all of them justified by a threat environment that we consistently exaggerate. And we've been doing that since the beginning of the Cold War. We exaggerated the threat of international communism in the late 40s and 50s and early 60s when I was in graduate school. We exaggerated the Soviet threat. We've exaggerated the threat of international terrorism. We haven't taken into account that we have really uh, defeated al-Qaeda and that these copycat groups that we see are not part of an al-Qaeda organization. And now, and this was true as I was leaving the war college where I taught until 2004, we're exaggerating the threat from China. And I think the policy that was enunciated by Obama on the very day, and this well, was not serendipitous, the very day we closed down our largest base in Iraq, the unfortunately named Camp Victory, uh, that's when Obama announced that we were pivoting our military power uh, to Asia uh, and the Pacific, sending the signal to Beijing that we were going to practice the same kind of policy of containment that was practiced toward uh, the Soviet Union that we're now going to practice toward China. Instead of looking at China as a diplomatic challenge, which is, to me, how do you ensure that China becomes a stakeholder in those issues where we're in agreement? Uh, nuclear weapons in North Korea, we don't want to see them. The Chinese don't want to see them. Nuclear weapons in Iran, the same thing. T international terrorism, uh, international crime. Uh, there are tremendous areas of uh, similarity between the United States and China, and these are not being uh, exploited. We don't have enough of a diplomatic framework and an institutionalized process for addressing these issues. Uh, finally, what I uh, would like to address uh, is uh, the institutions of oversight, because I think here is the real failure in our policy process that over the years we had developed institutions that were responsible for making sure the CIA didn't get off the tracks in terms of the covert actions it was pursuing, uh, organizations that would monitor and review, review the weapon systems that were being acquired and procured uh, by the Pentagon, all sorts of institutions of oversight. And one by one, these institutions have been uh, done away with are weakened so that real oversight doesn't take place anymore. We had an Office of Technology Assessments from the 1970s to 1995, when again Clinton bowed to pressure on the contract with America and abolished the Office of Technology Assessments, an extremely important uh, administrative entity. Uh, up until the year uh, 2000, Clinton's uh, last year, the Office of Money and um, uh, uh, Budget uh, manpower and Budget, OMB, was responsible for reviewing uh, Pentagon contracts. OMB was taken out of that field, and the Pentagon was allowed to review its own contracts and acquisition policies. Uh, the oversight committees that deal with the armed forces and deal with the intelligence community have been greatly weakened, particularly the Senate Intelligence Committee over the last uh, 20 years, uh, but also the Armed Forces uh, Committee. Uh, the Office of the Inspector General in these various institutions has really been weakened uh, under Obama. So when you look at institutions in our government that are responsible for oversight in a democracy, particularly when you're conducting oversight of a secret organization like the CIA in a democratic government, uh, when you think of the courts, when you think of the Congress, when you think of uh, the media, when you think of us, the public, the courts will not take on national security cases. Uh, they denied one just two weeks ago on warrantless uh, eavesdropping by saying the people who took uh, the case to court did not have standing. Well, how could you have standing when these are secret policies dealing with national security letters and warrantless eavesdropping in which you have trouble obtaining documentation? Uh, the Congress, uh, in terms of weakened uh, oversight, uh, the press, I have a special problem with the, with the print media, uh, because you have to realize when you read the print media, and here you have a special problem in Baltimore and what has happened to that wonderful newspaper that I grew up with, the Baltimore Sun, when you had people like uh, Price Day and Philip Potter uh, who wrote for that paper. Uh, most of what you read in the paper is what the government wants in the paper. These are official sources. It's very difficult for a contrarian to get into the paper. From time to time, you'll get an op-ed in it. 
if you're lucky. But newspapers in this country, by and large, have become very uh, official sources. So except for progressive radio uh, and websites, the blogs, uh, it's hard to obtain information that you need uh, to be critical uh, of, of policy. And finally, the public. The public could do more in demanding uh, something that William Fulbright did in the early 60s when he held those very important hearings on Vietnam. It didn't stop the war, but at least it laid out the dimensions of what American global engagement should be. And this is exactly what we need to do today. And when I think of uh, the arrogance of our leaders, I think of Fulbright's book from 50 years ago, The Arrogance of Power, because that's where we are right now. So that's essentially what the book deals with. And I want to throw it open to your comments, questions. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because uh, there's a tendency, and I'm guilty of this, <laughs> to dwell on the negative uh, aspects of the CIA and CIA policy. But you have to go back and look at why the CIA was created in 1947. Harry Truman was right. He knew that we needed an intelligence organization outside the policy framework that would try to provide objective and balanced information to policymakers. You know, truth is elusive, and you're never going to get a full picture. There are always going to be missing stones on this mosaic. But you had to make an effort in a professional way. So when intelligence was done properly and professionally, you got uh, the excellent work that justified the arms control agreements. You know, without the CIA guaranteeing verification and monitoring of the SALT Treaty in 1972, and I worked on that, and the ABM Treaty in 1972, you could not have gotten those treaties passed, a very skeptical uh, Congress. If you look at um, uh, Vietnam, not that it did any good, but the CIA, if you go back and the Freedom of Information Act has led to the release of all these estimates that were done in the, the 60s and early 1970s, uh, the CIA made it clear that the policy of strategic bombing was not going to work, that Vietnam was not an act of aggression by China and the Soviet Union. It was a civil war being fought between the North and the South, particularly when you had a corrupt leadership of uh, basically a small group of Roman Catholics in South Vietnam trying to lead a Buddhist nation, which led to the assassination of GM, which I think the Kennedy administration was involved with. Uh, but the, Viet, uh, the uh, CIA had the Vietnam situation certainly nailed in that uh, respect. If you look at early warning that dealt with um, uh, the Egyptian decision to uh, kick the Soviets out of the country in 1972 before um, uh, the October War, uh, which uh, Kissinger did not act on and actually admits in his uh, memoirs that he got good intelligence from the CIA but didn't act on it because Sadat was sending the signal that he wanted a new relationship um, with the United States and wanted to move away from reliance on, on Soviet power. So there, there have been serious uh, episodes. Um, I'm not going to cite the movie Argo because there's so much falsehood in Argo. In Argo. But CIA exfiltration, getting Chinese dissidents out of Beijing during the massacre at Tiananmen Square, getting Americans out of uh, Iran uh, in 79-80 and out of Iraq uh, later on in the 1980s, um, helping uh, labor organizations in Poland, the Solidarność uh, movement that was led by Valencia. Um, so, yeah, they, there have been these episodes, but then there have been terrible episodes of politicization. Um, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which was a fraud and a lie uh, based on an intercept that didn't exist. Um, and I think Lyndon Johnson knew that when he forced the Gulf of Ton Tonkin resolution uh, through the Congress. Um, the Iraq War, uh, the failure on the Soviet Union. In all of these cases, the CIA had done excellent collection of intelligence materials. In fact, I would argue for all the intelligence failures, both the traditional ones, uh, but the ones where there was politicization, the collection was good enough to prevent the disaster. Even the collection on 9-11 was good enough to ensure that 9-11 should not have happened the way it did. At least I believe that, and I wrote about that in a previous book. Uh, that would be true for the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
the collection was good enough to predict the weakening, maybe not the demise, the ultimate demise, but certainly the weakening. Uh, so the collection of intelligence is outstanding, and some of the technical work that the CIA did over the years in developing the U-2 um, and the SR-71 uh, were contributions to national security. But a lot of that has been lost um, in the failures that we've seen and the excesses, such as uh, political assassinations, and now this drone policy, which probably should go back to the Pentagon where there's more accountability. It probably shouldn't even be in the hands of the Central Intelligence Agency. No, the problem is the drone isn't very expensive. No, in fact, what the Air Force is faced with now, because uh, they're facing a situation where they're, I think already they're training more drone pilots than they are uh, fighter pilots. And if you look at the impact of robotics on uh, military R&D, we're approaching a situation where you could have robotic aircraft on aircraft carriers. Instead of an aircraft carrier with 5,000 to 6,000 people on it, you could have an aircraft carrier with robotic weaponry and fewer than 1,000 people on an aircraft carrier. Now, on the one hand, look what that would mean for the military budget and the savings. On the other hand, look how much easier it will become to go to war. Uh, we're only a few steps away from having robotic aircraft with computers and software in which they will, the drone or the robot will pick its own target. You won't, you won't have uh, military technicians sitting in trailers in New Mexico and Arizona playing with their Xbox game on a very lethal uh, level. Something has to be done to slow down this technology. Uh, yeah. So sort of give the best case of how do we get out of this mess? Well, how do you think we're going to get out of it? Is the system going to write itself or are we going well, to stand up and shout it down? Well, I have no confidence in our ability to stand up and shout it down. We've given up. This country is fast asleep. Uh, Richard Nixon made a wonderful Faustian bargain with the people of this country when he told the middle classes, look, get off the streets and stop protesting my war and I'll stop drafting your kids and your grandkids. And we bought that. So you've had no anti-war movement in this country ever since. You had nothing with regard to Iraq, nothing with regard to Afghanistan. And when you had a few glimmers of hope, the press didn't cover it anyway. So it, it never led anywhere. The only way you're going to get change is serious cuts in the defense budget that will force the Pentagon to do something differently. And we're, we're trying to deal with that uh, now. But a president and maybe the wish is father uh, to the thought in this case, but I think Obama's instincts are right on these areas in terms of the need to control the military. I think he knew he was rolled by the military on the Afghan surge. He knew that the use of force uh, was overdone. That's why he led from behind in Libya. That's why he won't get into Syria. I think that, by the way, was a mistake, but that's another uh, issue. And that's why he is trying to control the influence of the military. But even in the last year of his presidency, in the first term uh, presidency anyway, he appointed a four-star general, David Petraeus, with very strong political views, to be the CIA director. That was outrageous. Um, and it was Petraeus who wrote the first policy memo recommending military assistance to the rebels in Syria. Uh, no one said anything. A CIA director is not supposed to be advocating policy. That's in the CIA mission statement from 1947. Uh, but all of these things are basically accepted. So until you have a leadership group that is aware of that and is willing to address it and willing to exercise real civilian power, uh, as Kennedy had to do during the Cuban Missile Crisis because he had been so misled and lied to by the military and the CIA in the Bay of Pigs, which is a stupid idea in the first place, something that came up in the last year of Eisenhower's administration, and Eisenhower thought that the Dulles brothers uh, and his vice president Nixon were crazy, and he just left it there for this young, naive, inexperienced uh, president. But by the Cuban Missile Crisis, he got it right, and he used diplomacy effectively. Um, so it's going to take that kind of leadership. But when you look at the debate in this country and the hardline views that you hear, and uh, institutions like the Washington Post run by a neoconservative editor by the name of Fred Hyatt and the 
neocons who dominate the writing in that paper. It's going to be hard to break through and have the kind of debate you need on the dimensions of our engagement. Uh, it's silly to talk about what the budget should be and how many instruments or how many uh, different fighter aircraft and destroyers uh, that we need without saying what are the limits on engagement? Where shouldn't we be? Why do we have over 900 bases and facilities around the world uh, 50, 60 years after the end of the Korean War and World War II. This has to be addressed. No, because I think that would be, uh, you know, we call Social Security the third rail of American politics. I think the defense budget's the third rail of American politics. Uh, people are afraid to, to challenge it. Yeah. I listened to her on the way over. It's repeated at 5 o'clock. Yeah. Well, I started working with Ray, by the way, in 1966. I think he had already joined the CIA when I got there. Um, so we've, we've been tackling this problem for the last 40-some uh, years. Um, until people are willing to get more active, uh, calling congressional offices. I talked to, I've lobbied a few times. I've gone down the hill. I lobbied against Bob Gates when he was named the uh, um, Secretary of Defense, and I've gone down on other occasions. And you can get into the offices. What staffers will tell you is they never hear from constituents on foreign policy issues or national security issues. So basically, they have a free vote uh, when it comes to all national security matters. Uh, you know, my favorite example is uh, Barbara Mikulski because she is a very powerful voice uh, on the Hill, and she's basically a scoop Jackson Democrat. She votes the way I think progressives want her to vote, and I know that's how I want her to vote on domestic matters, but on foreign policy matters, I think she's a disaster. And I don't see any w way of correcting that. And when you do write letters, I'm not always, and I've written to her, and I don't like the letters I get back from her uh, staff. Uh, but I don't think there are enough of those letters. There are not enough letter, uh, you know, a sufficient number of letters written to uh, newspapers. There are just not enough voices out there to, to create the impression that I get when I travel around the country and give these talks from time to time, that there are people out there who are fed up and want to use some new thinking and realize that the thinking that got us into these tr problems that we're in, and we're clearly in them, and I think people are aware of that now, that's the same old thinking, it's, and that's not going to get us out of these problems. That's not going to change anything. Um, yeah. I'm going down to Sarasota next month to talk to the Florida Veterans for Peace, which is a very large, you know, statewide organization. Well, you have a documentary filmmaker out there, Robert Greenwald, who um, Ray and I took part in a film called Uncovered, in, in which we talked about the, the weapons of mass destruction that weren't there. Uh, this was all available. It was commercially released, um, and Greenwald has done other documentaries like this. There, there are these voices out there, but they're, they're isolated in the back there. Well, let me start with North Korea, because I have... I have a view on a lot of these uh, individual issues that are creating uh, problems for us that there are diplomatic answers. Uh, but you've got to remember that the United States is a power that has uh, justified what it does by demonizing its opponents. So when you look at three problems that we have now with regard to, to Cuba, uh, Iran, and North Korea, uh, it's no surprise that we don't even recognize these states. We don't have official dealings. We don't have embassies in place. We have no uh, process for conducting a dialogue. Now, in Obama's first year, 2009, uh, some of you will remember two young American journalists stepped across the border. They were working on a story and were picked up by the North Koreans. The North Koreans alerted us immediately and said, if you send Bill Clinton here, uh, we will release them to Bill Clinton. Uh, the Obama administration came back with Al Gore. They didn't really want to deal with Bill Clinton because they didn't want to give him that much of a platform, not that he was ever going to be stopped uh, giving irrepressible uh, Bill Clinton. 
But the North Koreans said, no, we want Bill Clinton. The reason why they wanted Bill Clinton is he negotiated a very important agree with them, agreement with them in 1994, the agreed framework, which was responsible for a nuclear freeze. I think the North Koreans want to sit down with the United States bilaterally. Now, they don't want to sit down with six nations to include South Korea and, and Japan uh, and China and the United States. The United States is the only country uh, in the world that can guarantee the, the continued uh, stability or longevity of that uh, regime because we're a country, a power that practices regime change. You know, when you think of what we've done, going back to Eisenhower, really, because he led us down this way with the coup in Iran in 1953, for which we're still paying. Um, so there, uh, what I'm saying is there's a diplomatic opportunity there if we're willing to take it. You know, why are we flying B-52s now around the Korean Peninsula? You know, we've got a young leader who we don't understand, we know nothing about, we don't know to what degree he's really in command of, of the military or he's a puppet for the military. Uh, I'm convinced that most of this acting out that he's doing is for domestic reasons to show he's a new young leader who's capable, like his father and his grandfather, of protecting the sovereignty of uh, North Korea. We have a strong nationalist in, in South Korea as a president, and she's got to be watched. This is not the time to be sending aircraft carriers into the Persian, Persian Gulf just to uh, stick a finger in the eye of Ahmadinejad or to be flying the B-52s around the Korean Peninsula. That, uh, I think that is the problem. And I'm, I'm sorry, the first part was dealt with... Oh, hacked into. Um, I guess why I would have um, some pause about that is clearly the drone that crashed in Iran, uh, in which our lame explanation was we were monitoring events in uh, western Afghanistan uh, when it in inadvertently flew over the border. There's nothing to monitor in western Afghanistan. Western Afghanistan is fairly stable. It's the south and the east that we worry about, not the north and the west. So clearly there were some technical uh, glitches which enabled uh, North Korea, excuse me, Iran in turn to modify this technology and provide a drone to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah has overthrown Israel with a drone. This is a terrible precedent. You know, what happens when Russia starts using them against Georgia and China starts using them in, in Burma? Israel's already used them um, in uh, uh, the Gaza and, and the West Bank. Um, I, I think it's a technology that needs uh, some international um, tribunal or international discussions, such as cyber war. I would put that in the same area. These are technologies that we have not fully understood in terms of their potential, their impact. Uh, China has sent the signal that they want to talk about uh, cyber technology and cyber war. We should have answered that immediately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the fight he wanted to fight, though. Yeah. I, I, I suggest this, and this is leading to my question. That may have been the precursor to what we're dealing with now. There is the real poison, I think, in America. This thing, I, well, no, I don't call it, but political correctness. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that there were very, not enough voices out there. I contend that there are far too many voices out there on the left and the right, mm. including the blogosphere and all that other kind of stuff that we've got, the tweets, the this, the that, the other. But none of them are saying anything because everybody's afraid to say anything. Everybody's afraid that they're going to step on somebody's toes very quickly. Let me get around to my question. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks ago, a senator from Texas, who is the senior senator from California, on a fundamental constitutional question, tied to gun control, but fundamental question, I think most people in here are probably aware of the bit of a telecast. A couple days ago, Senator Portman comes back with a statement that overturns 3,500 years of culture, overturns his whole life of 40 years of marriage in, to save his son. My point is nobody on either left or right had anything to say much about 
either statement, either comment. We have a president right now that's being allowed to get away literally with murder. And yet people want to fit a square peg into a round hole to tell me how popular this guy is. We had a president before him, George W. Bush, you just mentioned, mm -hmm. that took this country to war and 70% of the American people agreed with that war. 80% of the Congress who had to underwrite the budget agreed with that war for 10 years. We had Bill Clinton that gave us Monica Lewinsky. I'm back now to Daddy Bush, probably the last even reasonably strong man to have that office. My question to you is, and I know I've gone around, but I'm going to talk. How in God's world are you going to address any of the issues that you laid out in front of us if the people that we are listening to in this country won't even call a spade a spade? Excuse me, can't say that anymore. Won't even say what things are in this country anymore. It's amazing. I don't have to read the Post anymore. I don't have to read the New York Times anymore. I haven't read the Wall Street Journal anymore. I know exactly what they're going to say. Because I know where they stand on the political spectrum. Well, you, you've covered a lot of ground. And I'm trying to, to see where I can wire into this and offer something specific. And I'm not sure I can be helpful. But there's no question that we have uh, numerous voices uh, in this country. But... Frankly, I don't think we've been reasonable enough in dealing with Obama on a level of his inheritance. He was left a political and economic and military situation that was as bad as any president has ever inherited, going back to Roosevelt and the Great Depression, and uh, Truman coming in at the end of the war with no preparation with regard to the atomic bomb and had to face decisions about how do we get out of World War II. Uh, Obama's situation in many ways was even more fundamentally uh, complex. I don't think people understood how much damage George W. Bush and Dick Cheney had done to the government, to the regulatory agencies, to social institutions. And if there had been another terrorist attack in this country in the wake of 9-11, and we can thank God that there wasn't, people like David Addington and John Yu and Jay Bybee, these mafia-type lawyers who were writing these torture memos and other documents, there is no way of predicting how far they were going to go to limit the uh, personal freedoms and political freedoms of this country because they were poised to do so. So I think Obama has made tremendous efforts. He's been educated. You know, he came along on same-sex marriage, for example. No one expected him to move when he did, but Joe Biden was given the credit for pushing him, whether inadvertently or not, into recognizing the need uh, for correcting the social history and the backwardness of this country. So we're, we're seeing society, in a way, catch up to certain issues. You know, when you travel in Europe... We call ourselves exceptional, and the Europeans think we're exceptional because we conduct capital punishment, which you don't have in Europe. We don't have serious single-payer universal health care the way you have uh, in Europe. We're too quick to use military force. We're too quick to engage in regime change. We're quick, too quick to use the CIA in the conduct of national security affairs. Uh, but gradually, we are trying to address these issues. We've had another setback on gun control uh, in this country. Uh, and Harry Reid is, is not going to bring up the assault weapons ban because the votes uh, just aren't there. But it's, it takes a process over a period of time, but it takes a certain energy and tenacity that I'm not sure this president has fully demonstrated the way Jimmy Carter, who I think has been unfortunately and unnecessarily maligned, and I think history will deal better with him as we get some distance between uh, Carter uh, and history uh, itself, but it takes a lot of tenacity and courage on these issues. Um, but I'm somewhat optimistic. Well, you know, given the structure of the military and um, the history of American national security, we're not going to be that kind of power. We're not going to be the, the isolationist power that Pat Buchanan says, you know, come home 
America. But I look at Obama ending Iraq for all practical purposes, starting slowly the wind down in Afghanistan, leading from behind in Libya, not getting involved uh, in uh, Syria, uh, supporting the bipartisan cut of $487 billion over uh, 10 years, plus the sequestration, which probably never go into effect for the military. The House and Senate is already finding ways uh, to get around it. But I think there's an understanding, and even when you look at the military, which has pursued this incredible operational tempo over the last 20 years when the Cold War had ended, the military is exhausted. Uh, last year, there were more soldiers and Marines who died at their own hand, suicide, than died in combat. The situation is totally out of control. The violence in the military, the sexual violence in the military. The, remember, this was the, all the things that weren't supposed to happen because this is what happened in Vietnam when we were sold on going for a professional military to avoid this kind of social disarray. Uh, and we have it. Uh, and I think there's some recognition in some circles. That's why I was a big fan of uh, the nomination of Chuck Hagel, who believes as people should believe that the use of the military should always be the last resort. Um, but you know, the, the, the critic um, uh, Beers once wrote that uh, war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. Until we wake up and realize there are other ways of, of learning about the international community, we're going to continue to have these problems. Beers? Spears, the great Ambrose Spears, the great social critic. So, well, thank you uh, very much. I enjoyed it. Great, great Q and A. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>